Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Planet Earth podcast from Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire. The world-famous Stonehenge forms a magnificent backdrop to today's podcast as I'll be meeting people who spend their time concentrating on the landscape that surrounds this ancient stone circle. Later on, we'll hear from the scientist who uses a satellite in space to study microscopic plants. And Tamara Jones will be joining me to reveal why baboons put friends over family when it comes to dining and how you're more likely to get bullied if you're a good catch. The National Trust Stonehenge Landscape Restoration Project began with Millennium in 2000. Its aim is to restore the landscape surrounding Stonehenge by recreating its chalk grasslands and reintroducing biodiversity to the area. And to discuss this, I'm joined by Chris Gingell from the National Trust, who's the countryside manager for Wiltshire, and Grace Twiston-Davis from the University of Reading. Chris, how has the landscape changed around Stonehenge over the last 100, 200 years? Well, when Turner and Constable painted Stonehenge, say 200 years ago, their views showed the great stretches of chalk grassland which surrounded the monument. Over the last 60 years, with the need for food production since the Second World War, most of that grassland was ploughed up and turned into a patchwork of arable fields, which as recently as 10 years ago still dominated the area around Stonehenge. And that arable landscape, of course, had very little biodiversity interest and was a, a poor environment for visitors to enjoy or to, you know, to explore in this wonderful, archaeologically rich, unique place. The purpose of the restoration project is to recreate a flower-rich, um, insect-rich environment of grassland around Stonehenge, not necessarily the same grassland form that would have been found 200 years ago, but certainly one with great biodiversity interests. It's more than just the landscape around the stones themselves. It's a project working jointly with other landowners uh, to restore much of the World Heritage Site here. So what's been going on then here since 2000? Well, what we did in 2000 was to bring a small quantity of seed harvested from Salisbury Plain to the great ancient grasslands to the north of here, uh, and, and to grow a crop in the field adjoining us here, Seven Barrows Field, with that naturally har- har- harvested natural grass. So the field that we're by the edge of right here, with all this lovely swaying grassland, and I can see a few sort of yellows of wildflowers and purples in the distance, this wasn't like this in 2010 years or so ago. No, this was another field of winter weeds and so on. But in, the, in this field, we, we grew the first stand of, of, of this, this flower-rich grassland and used this as, if you like, the nursery site to harvest further seed. And every one to two years, another large arable field has been converted from corn to grassland with seed either harvested here or now the programme sort of rolls on so that some of the fields that were laid down six or seven years ago are now being in, in turn harvested to spread the seed further around the site. So what was there? In fields that have been growing for five or six years with this grassland, you can find as many as 96 species of flowering plant. And, and at this time of the year in August, obviously what we see now is it mainly the, the tall stems and seeds heads of the grasses. A little earlier in the summer, very distinctive plants, the, the pinkish red of, of, of sanfoin, the 
ox-eyed daisy and other familiar plants earlier still. Cowslips are very abundant. And amongst the grass, smaller plants like bird's foot trefoil and other things that are typical of, of, of chalk grasslands. And when did you decide to get the University of Reading on board? We decided this about four years ago. There were really two aims. One, the university itself has, of course, great botanical expertise, which is you know, far beyond anything that we can offer or provide ourselves. Secondly, the site was so suitable for what's proved to be a, a whole succession of successful MSc students as their sort of main projects for each one, covering not just the flowers but, but uh, in, insects as well. And now we, we've sort of developed further with, with this PhD project which Grace is working on, more sort of intensive studies, bringing the skills that the university has, but it's also providing, uh, I think, a tremendous sort of outdoor workshop for the university to get to carry out these studies and for the students to develop from, and it's been a great success. That's a perfect opportunity for me to speak to Grace Twiston-Davis about your particular aspect of your work. And you're not so much interested in the seeds and the flowers and the grasses, but the insects. Yes, that's right. We're focusing on the butterflies mainly because they're indicator species. But the new meadows are really good habitats for bumblebees, other bees, grasshoppers, crickets, like all sorts of insects, really. And what form does your work take? Actually, the easiest way is to show you. So we're just going to do a transit walk in this new reversion field here. Over the stile we go. Oh, there we go. I'll have to be very careful to avoid the barbed wire here. And into the grass and ah now it's interesting that um now that i'm up close you can actually see far more wildflowers than i could see just from about 20 meters away this is beautiful this section that we're looking at here we've got this lovely lilac colored flower which is actually the field scabious and the butterflies and the, and the bees they love this one we've got the pink the bright pink one here oh yes this is sainfoin, and it's the same that it's like really good nectar plant for lots of insects. I recognise the clovers and the bird's foot yes, trefoils. Yeah, that's right. The bird's foot trefoil is actually really good for bird moths. Their caterpillars eat that plant. So this field, um, when the burnt moths emerge, is absolutely full of burnt moths. So these beautiful black and red moths, um, dayfly moths, they're absolutely gorgeous. So they love this field. Right, you come into a field like this. You've got in your hand, I notice, a sort of folder. Basically, when I do the survey, I just need a survey sheet, which so I can just write down what butterflies I see, and an identification sheet, which just helps me with some of the female butterflies some of the blues are quite difficult to identify so I have that as well in a pen and I have a stopwatch as well because I often do about 30 minute survey just show me exactly okay. talk me through okay. exactly what you do we'll walk in a straight line for about 100 meters quite slowly and we'll look either side of us about 10 meters either side and we'll see what butterflies in the transect okay well let's walk about 10 meters or so through the grass It's a little bit windy today, so we may not see as many as if it was more of a still day. They might be more in the in the undergrowth, sheltering from the wind. I've seen some meadow browns. There's a few meadow browns fluttering about. Gosh, you must have extremely good eyesight because <laughs> uh, 
I can't see them yet. I'm sure it's like acclimatising your eyes yeah. whenever you go into yeah. the countryside, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I've seen a lovely bumblebee on the uh, scabious, the lilac scabious. Yeah, so the meadow browns are quite common in this field. You can tell, it's the way they fly, they fly very distinctively, almost like they're on a piece of string. They kind of bob up and down. So, oh, a blue, I can see a blue over there. It's probably a common blue. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, lovely. Sorry, you do have to have good <laughs> eyes for this. Well done. Yeah, so that's, that's a male common blue there. It's a lovely kind of lilac-y blue colour, and it's just resting It's almost there. like it's ringed with a pale white. White, yes. yes. So how many species of butterflies have you observed in this beautiful, recreated chalk grassland? Well, last year when I did the surveys, we saw over 20 different species. Common blues, we saw small heaths, small tortoise shells, Adonis blues, small blues. Oh, it's interesting you mentioned Adonis blues because they've not been as sort of successful, have they, in terms of returning to the sites as other species of butterfly? Yes, that's because the Adonis blue are mainly at the old chalk grassland fragments that are still on this landscape. So we only see them in the new restored fields when they're coming to look for nectar in the, the new flowers that are there. But they're quite specialised. and They'll only lay their eggs on horseshoe vetch and their caterpillars will only eat horseshoe vetch. And that's a plant that's very restricted to these old fragments. But we're hoping that in the future that the horseshoe vetch will become established in the, the new restored fields and we can ex- expand their populations. Right, well, let's walk back through the grass towards... Chris, so uh, I can just find out from him where this project is going to end. For you, though, you've got another season possibly here. Yes, next year I've got one more field season. And what do you hope to have achieved at the end of this project? Well, we hope to be able to provide recommendations for future restoration projects and how they can be successful and how they can take less time to produce successful results and to to get the biodiversity into the new sites. Let's get back over this stile. It is a a blustery day today, isn't it? But it's it's really rather beautiful. Hi, Chris. It's all gone really well. It was rather beautiful to see. It's nice to see you sheltering from the wind in your (laughs) National Trust Land Rover. When, for you, will you consider this restoration project complete? I suppose what we're doing is, is perhaps not something that, that in a sense has a completion, but something which will be its own sustainable long-term future as a, as a landscape. And that really is a question of scale. I think we've all known for a very long time that our protected sites, little fragments of the countryside that have much of their biodiversity interest, are many, many of them too small, too isolated, too fragmented. And one of the things which... Grace's work will help us to understand here is just how extensive does this have to to be to have that long-term viability and for the the free movement of plants and animals without so much intervention. What we've done, of course, is in the last 10 years is intervention. But for that grassland to persist with all its character and interest in the future. Have you managed to get cooperation from farmers? Because you're effectively reducing a farmer's livelihood if they turn a field into a meadow. That's a very important point. With all the goodwill in the world, none of this could have been achieved without the support of a special stewardship scheme, which has recognised the fact that as a grazed grassland, it's it's far less economically productive than, than, than it was as arable cornfields 
and has given the farmers that support to carry out the change and, and, and to operate it for some years. Farming in the future will need support here to continue to operate in this very extensive way. Chris Gingell, Grace Twiston Davis, thank you both very much indeed. You're listening to the Planet Earth podcast from Salisbury Plain overlooking Stonehenge. Now, August is usually a quiet month for news, but one glance at the paper shows that this year that's not quite the case. And it's the same in the environmental world, especially when it comes to primates. Not one, but several stories recently, and Planet Earth Online's Tamara Jones is here to share them with us. It's with one primate in particular, isn't it? Baboons. Exactly. It's baboon beauties. And this uh, latest study has found that being a good-looking female baboon might kind of bag you the best-looking male, you know, really handsome, handsome male. But actually, being a beauty has its drawbacks. And UK and German researchers have found that the female baboons that are most desirable, the ones that are on heat, that are ready to mate, are actually much more likely to be bullied than the, the females that aren't ready to mate. Who does the bullying? It's the female baboons in the troop that are doing the bullying. And the researchers also found that if you're a good catch, if you're female, you're good looking, you're a really good catch, and you're guarded by an alpha male, so he's trying to protect you against being mated with by other males, you're twice as likely to be bullied by those females in in the troop. Now this sounds, if these were humans, you'd say it was a a straightforward case of, of jealousy, but I suspect that's not completely the case when you're looking at animal behaviour, or is it? Well, the researchers aren't quite sure. I mean, it could just be jealousy. But what's really clear from this study is that researchers used to think that the females would just fight over food, and it's the males that fought over sex, and it kind of makes sense that they'd think that. Um, But actually, this study shows that sex is much, much more important in uh, shaping relationships between females in large primate groups, likely with these baboons, than previously thought. So further insights, then, into baboon behaviour particularly as regards to sex and bullying and also another story equally fascinating about baboons dining habits yeah well this one's about baboons preferring to dine with their friends this is about baboons in the namib desert so it's the same set of baboons that scientists looked at in the previous study and they found that the baboons prefer dining with their friends rather than their relatives which is kind of surprising you'd expect wouldn't you that they prefer to be in family groups well yeah exactly i mean in the desert i didn't say it's really difficult to get food they tend to fight over food because it's such a sort of low resource and the researchers found that their friends are more likely to be the ones that they groom the most so what's interesting is that they they saw that the subordinate males if they invested time grooming the, the dominant male those dominant males are much more likely to be tolerant of them on their food patches so clearly the uh, subordinate male was benefiting from grooming the, the dominant male. Fascinating stuff Tamara Jones thank you very much indeed. From baboons to plankton now the smallest organisms in the sea and these aquatic plants provide the base of the food chain for marine life. They also draw carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to build up their cells and use the chlorophyll in these cells to harvest sunlight. So it might be a surprise to discover that Earth observation scientist Dr Peter Miller from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory uses a satellite in space to study these microscopic plants. Although chlorophyll and the plankton are individually microscopic, in massive numbers and concentrations that tints the water the shade of green that we're familiar with and that is what we can detect from satellites. 
we can see how green the water is from space and with algorithms we can convert that into a measure of the chlorophyll and hence the amount of plankton in the water. And why do you want to know how much plankton is in the water? Because plankton is so important for the carbon cycle and for other marine life, it's very important that we know where it's growing, how that's changing in our changing climate, if there's any migration of the plankton further north with warmer seas, if there's change in the types of plankton that's growing. It's a good measure of how healthy the ocean is. Why use a satellite for this when you could maybe just use a a research ship? The satellites give us a wonderful coverage of the ocean almost globally every day. So depending on the cloud cover, we can see through to the ocean and build up a picture of every part of the ocean on a daily time scale, and that allows us to follow the progression of blooms. We can see the seasonal cycle. We can monitor for particular blooms that might be of interest, like, like harmful algae. Most algal blooms, like the one 50 miles long off the coast of Devon and Cornwall earlier this year, are both natural and benign. And they're also an important food source. But some blooms can be a problem. It's only particularly dense blooms that, when they decay, the bacteria can consume all of the oxygen in the water, usually in the deeper part of that ocean. So it's there where it can have a significant effect on the marine life certain types of algae under certain conditions can produce toxins you know poisonous substances that get released into the water when they're consumed by shellfish for instance they can get concentrated and it's very bad news then if humans eat that poisonous shellfish can you tell purely from satellite data whether a bloom is harmful or not by its color maybe this is what we're studying under a a european project called aquamar and within that we're trying to develop our tools for assessing particular characteristic colors that certain blooms indicate when they're harmful we're studying the whole archive of data we're picking out examples of blooms that were harmful and we're then trying to classify new satellite images to see if they're similar in colour to those known blooms. What can this sort of information be used for then? It's very important for the aquaculture industry. They need to know if harmful blooms are going to affect their fish farms or shellfish. It's important for the authorities that deal with bathing water because it it may be something that they need to warn the public about when it happens. It can also be important for climate change studies. We need to know if certain kinds of harmful algae blooms are going to occur more frequently with the changing climate. And when do you think you'll be in a position to actually produce a sort of algal bloom early warning system? We've got prototype systems that we've involved with the Environment Agency in the UK and we're now testing them around Europe. I should say that this work is based upon our national capability which is the NEADAS service. That provides us with the core capability to process huge quantities of satellite images every day and very quickly so that if a bloom does happen we can provide this kind of information the same day that we get the satellite image.
Dr Peter Miller from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory ending our Planet Earth podcast from Salisbury Plain near Stonehenge. Do check out our Twitter feed and there'll be some photos of our wonderful location on the Planet Earth online Facebook page. I'm Sue Nelson. Thanks for listening.